My name is Andy. I'm one of the pastors here at Bayview Glen. And on behalf of all of us here, I just want to thank you and welcome you for coming this morning. Specifically, if you're new, we're glad that you have come to choice, chose uh, to worship with us this morning. I have the pleasure of introducing our speaker this morning, uh, who is Sundar Christian. Um, he used to be the lead pastor of Rexdale Alliance Church. And I know Sundar, we go way back. Uh, I was a part of Rexdale Alliance when I first graduated from university. So like 20 years ago, I was part of their church, part of their young adult uh, program there. Uh, and there's so many things that I could say uh, about Sundar. He is a fantastic preacher. Uh, he is an inspirational leader. But the thing that I appreciate about him most is that he is a worshiper. And I don't know if you could see, because he's just this little Indian guy with his hands raised during worship but he worships hard, and he comes up here and he does these amazing sermons, just unpacks God's word in such a powerful way, but I know that it always comes from heart of worship, and so I've been always grateful for that example that you've set for us. And so please, join me in giving a warm Bayview Glen welcome to Sunder Christian. Well, it's always a pleasure for me to be back here. Uh, Lucas keeps inviting me back, and I'm glad to come. Just uh, I come with a heart of uh, gratitude to God for just the sheer pleasure of being able to preach his word. It's a solemn but also a joyful responsibility, and I never grow tired of that privilege. Uh, I thank God for the privilege here of that someone would entrust his congregation to Someone is much, much older than him, you know, gray hairs, uh, not necessarily in style, but I'm so thankful that uh, the entire age spectrum is represented in a congregation like this, and old and young together uh, serve God through the gifts. I'm so grateful for that. I just feel a wonderful sense of gratitude, and, and above all, with a sense of expectation that what God has laid on my heart is very much, hopefully, part of the answer to what Andy just prayed for us for and what we just sang, that the Spirit would come, that uh, His glory is something that we are longing for. These are not just words that we sing so and forget. So hopefully the message will just continue to take your mind back to what you just finished, taking six minutes telling God that you would like to see and have Him come and change the whole atmosphere in this place. I wonder what would happen if He actually ever answers the prayers that we actually sing. You know? So that's really what I want to talk about this morning. I want to start by asking a question. If... God would have come to you and say, I will give you one prayer request and I'll answer it for sure. With only one constraint, it's nothing to do with you as a person. It, ha it has to be a prayer for the community, either this church or the church in Canada or the church around the world. What would that prayer request be? That he, if he guaranteed that he will answer that. I suspect your answer will depend a lot on what kind of turns your crank? What aspect of the kingdom of God gets you excited or whatever you're exercised about? Maybe some of you are concerned about the breakdown of families in our society. And so your prayer would be for God to revitalize families, marriages, uh, husband-wife relationships, parent-children relationships. Maybe for ministries like Focus on the Family and whatnot. Maybe your own church's family ministries. Perhaps some of you are passionate about about injustice and justice in the world and so your heart would cry out for, for judges in the land to be just judges for those that work on behalf of freeing kids who have been ensnared in the sex slave trade and things like that. Maybe some of you have a passion for the world that God would uh, broadcast and speed the missionary effort and send many, many cross-cultural ambassadors for Christ to the difficult places in the world. And they're all legitimate, they're all important things to pray for. 
But here's the problem. If God were to answer any one of those prayers, the others would not automatically be answered. If he answered your prayers for the revolution of revolutionizing of families and marriages, that's not going to do anything for the justice ministries in the world. So here's the question. Is there any one prayer that you could ask God for, for the community, which if answered would automatically take care of all the other issues as well? Well, there actually is one. It's a prayer for revival. It's a word that we are familiar with. It's a word that we even use sometimes. We might even sing in our songs for God to revive us. But what exactly does it mean? There's quite a bit of confusion about it. Author, Canadian author George Malone tells the story once of how at a, at a party that he was at, the hostess had a beautiful uh, collection of fine china which she had in a display cabinet. And there was this five-year-old boy that was just lost in absolute admiration. He just stood in front of this whole thing, stared at it for a while, and then he addressed the lady and said, Mrs. So-and-so, you have a wonderful Tupperware collection. <laughs> because all this kid had ever known was Tupperware, and so he couldn't recognize bone china when he saw it. We're in that kind of a situation. We, we don't know revival. We've never seen revival. And so we mistake all kinds of things for revival. James Edwin Orr, a man who studied uh, revival for 60 years, had earned three earned doctors in that field, talks once about driving down the San Fernando Valley in, in Northern California. Uh, and there, uh, he saw a sign outside a church which said revival every Monday night. Five miles down the road, on the same road, no kidding, he saw a sign saying revival every night except Monday night. Well, we mix up what we mean by revival is special meetings where evangelists come in or deeper life conference speakers come in and you get, come to the church every night, have special times of prayer. Now, all of those things are important, but they're not what revival is all about. What exactly is it? We need to understand it. And there's one passage of scripture more than any other that contains all of, that, all of those elements. And I just want to walk you through that. It's the 64th chapter of the book of Isaiah. And let me just walk you through that and just... Kind of lead each, each thing will lead to a question that will lead to an answer further down that passage. So it begins in verses one to three. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you. Come down and make your name known to your enemies. Cause the nations to quake before you. For when you did awesome things that we did not expect, you came down and the mountains trembled before you. That, that's the definition of revival. The manifest presence of God that does awesome things that we did not expect and therefore could not program or plan in any way. About 30 years ago when I first began to think and read and pray about these things, a man by the name of David Bryant helped me a lot. And he said, if you want to capture it in two words, it's intensification and acceleration. Revival is a time of intensifying our love relationship with Jesus Christ where we get increasingly captivated and, and fall in love with his glory and his worth. And therefore, as a result of that, the mission for Christ is accelerated, whatever dimensions of it, global justice, poverty, uh, evangelism, and all of those things. Intensification and acceleration. But theological and grammatical definitions, even though they may be absolutely correct, don't really, they're very sterile, and they don't really have power to, to motivate us or to paint pictures that only stories can. And so for a generation like ours that only knows Tupperware and not real bone china when it comes to revival, we need some actual stories of what this looks like. And on the link to a sermon that will go on the website here, uh, I've given you a link to a, a little booklet called When the Fire Falls. Uh, read it. 
it'll give you some idea of what real revivals are really like. But today, I just want to give you a single snapshot to give some specific contours to intensification and acceleration. What does that look like when God actually shows up and does awesome things that we did not expect? If I had to choose only one story, it would be this little extract from the Welsh revival. Through a whole series of events that was triggered by one 17-year-old boy in his, in his, in his uh, college dorm praying, Lord, he went to the altar at a meeting and said, Lord, break me. It set in motion a series of events where as a result, every church in Wales was full every night for 18 months. Every church, every night in all of Wales, full for 18 months. Just imagine that. That's not revival every Monday night. Here's a snapshot of what happened in one church. A coal miner by the name of Lewis worked in the mines from 6 a.m. till 3 o'clock in the afternoon. That's nine hours in the coal mines. He went home, freshened up, and took his family and went to church. It was 4 o'clock in the evening in church. The meeting was supposed to start at 7. The church was completely jam-packed at 4 o'clock. Evan Roberts was supposed to come and speak. And so when he came, he had to climb and walk on the top of people's shoulders to even get into the pulpit. That's how jammed the place was. So he got to the pulpit and he said, let us pray. That's all he said, three words. All of that waiting for three words and people began to pray simultaneously. One of the characteristics of the Welsh revival. So while he was praying, Lewis felt someone digging him in the ribs and a guy next to him said, you got to stop praying. I can't stand this anymore. Can you please introduce me to Jesus? So he did. They continued till two o'clock in the morning. He went home at two, fell asleep in, the, in his sofa in front of the fireplace, woke up at five o'clock, went to work at six, came back at three o'clock in the afternoon, picked up his family, went to church, and the same meeting was still continuing. That gives you a picture of what happens when God shows up. It's nothing like revival every Monday night. Nothing that we can plan or orchestrate. All sense of time just completely disappears in these places. Because God has answered that prayer. Holy Spirit, come fill this place. Let us become aware of your glory. Fill and change the atmosphere. That's the kind of stuff that happens during revival. Now, if revival is the work of God, something that can't be planned or orchestrated, is there anything that we can do to prepare for it or pave the way for it? Well, Isaiah continues when he says in verses 4 to 7, since ancient times no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God beside you who acts on behalf of those who wait for you. No one calls on your name or strives to lay a hold of you. Now in scripture, waiting on God is not a passive thing. We're just sitting there twiddling your thumbs for the post to arrive or anything like that. It actually carries with it an idea of intense and earnest expectation. It is waiting in expectation and hope that God is going to act. And laying a hold of him, calling on him by his name, is, is a synonym for prayer that is shaped by the revealed character of God, both in his person and in his works. So Isaiah basically links those two things together. God rending the heavens and coming down to do something that we did not expect is very closely linked to the believing prayer of his people who are calling upon God, laying a hold of him by his name and expecting him to show up and to act. So God cannot be manipulated. God cannot be coerced. Revival is sovereignly his work in terms of manner, place and time. But the uniform testimony of scripture and history is this, that united, persevering corporate prayer is an indispensable key to preparing the way for God to show up like that.
Let's go back to God's China cabinet. Let me give you a couple of examples. This is the first great evangelical awakening in the early part of the 18th century. A young, a young university student by the name, an imposing name of uh, Count Ludwig von Zinzendorf became a Christian through the German pietistic movement. And he began to pray. He began to pray, Lord, send me, send me overseas. God said, no, you go back to the estate that you inherited. He inherited a large estate in, in, in Moravia. And uh, he said, you look after that. Well, around that time, his estate was being used as a haven for about 400 refugees who were fleeing religious persecution. Now, these were people from various ethnic backgrounds. And so there was a lot of conflict. So Zinzendorf's heart was broken, and he called four of the elders, representing four different ethnic communities there, and said, we're going to pray. Well, he continued praying, and the conflicts got worse. So he just opened up the prayer meeting to anybody. And all of a sudden, while they were praying, on August the 27th, 1727, the Holy Spirit of God fell upon them. And it started a prayer meeting that is known as the Hernhut Prayer Watch, where for 24-7, for 100 years, prayer was offered and continued. That's awesome things that we did not expect. The results were staggering. In the next 12 years, eight different mission bases were established, and the whole movement called the Moravian Missionaries was sent all over. It was one of those Moravian missionaries that influenced a young man named John Wesley. And he, along with Charles Wesley and George Whitfield, were praying in London. Fetters, they were called the Fetters Lane Society. And I think it was New Year's Eve, 1727, the Holy Spirit fell upon England, upon this Fetters Lane Society, and launched a preaching ministry that saved England from the kind of revolution that swept France many years later. At the same time, across the pond, a young man by the name of Jonathan Edwards was preaching and writing, intent, destined to become the greatest philosopher theologian America has ever produced. Who would know whether the preaching of a Wesley or a Whitfield or an Edwards and his prodigious writing output and the sermons of these men was the result of a whole bunch of unnamed people praying in the Hernhut Prayer Watch. It began in prayer, it was sustained in prayer. Well, jump a hundred years forward to the second great evangelical awakening, which, by the way, actually started in Hamilton, Ontario. The events leading up to 1857 was a time of incredible prosperity in America. Businesses were booming, people's personal wealth was increasing. Not surprisingly, church attendance was dwindling. Spiritual ebb was at a low. So many people crowded into New York City that the wealthy left the city for the suburbs, so did the churches, and poorer folk began to move in in the downtown area. It's very familiar, right? But one church decided to stay back, and they commissioned a layman, a businessman by the name of Jeremiah Lampier, and said, you go visit people. So Jeremiah would visit people, no result, no effect at all. So in desperation, one day he was praying, and he said, God, what do you want me to do? And, and he felt strongly impressed to announce a prayer meeting for business people downtown. So he did. He put up a notice, announced that they had business. Well, 12 o'clock, it was supposed to be there. Nobody showed up to 12.30. One individual showed up at 12.30. And slowly, by the end of the hour, about six people had come. By the third week, 40 people came. And then the Great Depression crash of 1857 came. 30,000 people in New York City alone lost their jobs. And by now, people began to just flood into the churches for the prayer meeting. Here's what happened. 
1858, New York City alone had 6,000 people involved in daily noon prayer meetings. Tens of thousands crowded into the churches for prayer in the evening. In Chicago, at the same time, almost 2,000 gathered for an hour of prayer every noon. Over a two-year period, it was estimated that upwards of a million people were added to the church in North America. The same revival jumped the pond in one fell swoop where four young men in Ireland were preaching, and the Holy Spirit fell upon them. Of course, they heard what happened there, and it intensified their praying. By the way, in the book, when, when, fire, when the fire falls, it tells you that story as well. See, what do these, just these two stories among many show us? It confirms what we are learning, that while God is sovereign when it comes to the timing and the manner and the place of revival, what precedes it uniformly is this kind of cross-denominational purposeful praying for God to do exactly that. Now, once we understand that, the next natural question is, well, what kind of praying? What is to be the content of the kind of praying that will pave the way for God to come in reviving power? Well, Isaiah talks about that too. Chapter 64, verse 6. All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. Notice the force. All our righteous acts are like filthy rags. Not all of our sinfulness or our shortcomings. All of the acts that we consider righteous are as filthy rags. Now, at this point, you're going to say, come on, Sunda, that's just overkill, right? That's kind of really negative. Revival is supposed to be upbeat, positive, exciting. Well, yeah, again, this is a symbol of our Tupperware religion. That's the whole point. It will actually take God to come in reviving power to even see the condition of what our hearts are really like. That's the other testimony of history. In fact, the first impact when God does come in revival is deep, deep, deep-seated repentance. Listen to Edwards, who in that same time, in 1735 and 1742, experienced two seasons of revival in his small church in Northampton. He writes this. Persons are sometimes brought to the borders of despair, and it looks as black as midnight to them. There have been a few instances of persons who have had such a sense of God's wrath against sin that they've been made to cry out under an astonishing sense of their guilt. Wondering that God suffers such guilty wretches to live upon earth and does not immediately send them to hell. Sometimes their guilt so stares them in the face that they're in exceeding terror for fear that God would instantly do it. Now, it's pretty safe that not a single person here, including myself, has ever experienced conviction of sin and repentance like that. By the way, if you read on in the stories, you will find God doesn't do this because he likes to see people grovel. God does it because this paves the way for joy. This paves the way for such an invasion of the spirit of joy to come in. You see, if God were to rend the heavens and come down and do awesome things that we did not know, then one of the first things that will happen to us is we will begin to see the condition of our hearts in a way that we've never seen before. Now you may say, what does this have to do with the content of praying that paves the way for revival? Simply this, if Deep-seated repentance is the first impact of revival. It stands to reason that thoroughgoing repentance, as much as we can do it now, is in fact the best way to prepare for the coming of revival as well. And so the first indispensable element of the kind of praying that is necessary to pave the way for God to answer the prayers we've been singing about today is deep-seated repentance. Now what specific sins should we be repenting of? 
probably anything that God brings to your mind would be true. But there are four sins in particular that the New Testament directly links to the Holy Spirit. So if it's the Spirit that we want, and revival is nothing else but the Spirit coming in to magnify Jesus, then we better deal with those in particular. So we want to walk you through four of those. First one in Mark chapter 3, verse 29, some of you are familiar with the so-called unpardonable sin. Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He is guilty of an eternal sin. Well, what, was the, what's the, what is this blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Well, if you look at the context, and it happens in three of the Gospels, the context is exactly the same. Jesus is actually speaking to the Pharisees, the religious elite, the ones who thought they had nothing to repent of. And they basically discounted Jesus' claims by saying, oh, all these amazing miracles that you're doing, that's not the kingdom of God, that's the kingdom of darkness. So by attributing the work of the Holy Spirit to the devil, they discounted Jesus' call to repent. And so they could avoid the keen edge of this new kingdom that Jesus was calling them to. Today, with respect to revival, I call that discounting the spirit through unbelief. You see, if we can ex explain away revival by some other means, then we don't have to take it seriously. We can be, continue to be happy with Tupperware religion. This happened in Edwards' time. Other pastors in the city would, were denouncing revival. They called it enthusiasm. They didn't mean the word enthusiasm, what we mean today. What they meant by enthusiasm then was what we would call fanaticism today. Oh, this, this revival, it all sounds fanatical. Just a bunch of delusional people who have been worked up by some clever speakers. Yeah, you see, when we do that and we can discount all these stories that you read, then I said you can carry on with life the way you are. That's why I said the first sin is of discounting the sin through unbelief. Unbelief of God's ability, God's desire, and God's intention to want to rend the heavens and come down and make his name known amongst us. That's the first thing we need to repent of, unbelief, that these things can really, really happen in our time. Now, this is good for me. I, knew, I was reminded of all these things all over again for myself. Another sin that is linked to the Holy Spirit is in Ephesians chapter 4 called grieving the Spirit. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander along with every form of malice. Now this is coming uncomfortably close to home. This is grieving the Holy Spirit through the sin of disunity, unforgiveness, anger, relational conflicts within the church, fueled by bitterness and resentment and gossip. This, this, this grieves the Holy Spirit of God. He, Holy Spirit, you're welcome in this place, we sang. Well, not if we behave like this towards each other. You're not welcome in this place. He's grieved when he sees that. And so we need to take this sin, these sins very seriously. Unresolved conflict, as much as it lies within you, especially within the body of Christ. Relational tensions at home, in marriages, in relationship parents, sibling rivalries, resentment of colleagues in the workplace, on pastoral staff, everywhere. We need to take it seriously. Another sin that is linked to the Holy Spirit is what I call lying to the Spirit. The classic New Testament example of this comes in Acts chapter 5. Now the book of Acts was actually a time of revival. The Spirit came on Pentecost and People began to preach. Hundreds and thousands of people began added to the church. The first four chapters are the work of the Holy Spirit in exalting Jesus Christ and add, drawing people to Jesus and then sending them out to proclaim the gospel. That's the heart of revival. 
In, in, and one of the amazing things that the Holy Spirit did was to produce an incredible spirit of generosity. Most of the people that came to Christ in the beginning were poor, relatively poor people. And most of the people who heard the gospel were poor. But there were some who were not so poor. They had houses, they had lands. And spontaneously, not because somebody orchestrated a, a, a requirement, they, they would spontaneously sell pieces of land that they had and release resources and give it to the apostles who would then minister to the poor. Well, pick up the story in Acts chapter 5. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? After it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? Of course, the text doesn't tell us why they did it. We can reasonably presume two things. I suspect rationalization must have been involved. Maybe they didn't expect to get this much money for the land. Maybe they rationalized and said, you know what? We were only thinking we were to get this much. We got this much more. So we really only need to give what we first thought we would give. I don't know. Some, we are rationalized all the time when it comes to financial things. And the second thing was, of course, image. Well, I told them I was going to give them everything. So I would have to make it appear like I gave them everything. That therein lay the deception. A deception born of rationalization. The penalty was severe. Both Ananias and Sapphira dropped dead. He said, really? Why? Why something so serious? Well, this was in the midst of a Holy Ghost revival. Everything gets magnified. Anything that can quench and quench the power of the Spirit was very serious. Well, if, if this kind of stuff, and I call this lying to the Spirit by rationalizing materialism, If this kind of thing has the power to quench a revival that's already started, it's also important because it can quench it before it even starts. So we need to deal with that as well. Uh, another little booklet you may want to read was written by Irwin Lutzer called Flames of Renewal. That's much closer to home. It was a Western Canadian revival in 1975. And many, many testimonies of people who have participated in that. And one of the recurring sins that they say the Holy Spirit convicted them of was the sin of materialism. They said we did not know how deep a grip things had upon us. Maybe we'll take an invasion of the spirit into our lives to realize the extent to which materialism has a grip in our lives. Do you know that the evangelical church across North America as a whole only gives 2.4% of their income to the church? That's not even tithing, let alone the proportional giving that God enjoins us in the New Testament. If Christians just simply tithe, we'd have four times the amount of money that is now released for the sake of the kingdom. We don't know. We are deeply gripped by materialism in this city, and we have all kinds of ways of rationalizing our present lifestyles, our choices, and, and we need God to expose that to us. We need to confess that. So discounting the spirit through unbelief, grieving the spirit through disunity, lying through the spirit through rationalized materialism, and then lastly... 1 Thessalonians 5, 19 to 20. Do not put out the Spirit's fire. Do not treat prophecies with contempt. I call this quenching the Holy Spirit through, through rigidity, born of fear and pride. Well, take our worship service as an example. And by the way, this is not a criticism of your service. I was a pastor for 36 years and I regularly had to plan our services. I'm a very, very structured person. 
I fully expected to leave here around 12.30, 12.45 today. What if something like Wales breaks in upon me? I don't want that. Do you want to hang around for the next 36 hours, not even free to go? Not because anyone's forcing you, just because you're gripped on the inside. You never know. I don't want that. We like, we like calm. We like prediction. We like boundaries very much. And I'm not against planning. Don't get me wrong. I'm a planner by, by, by personality. But it gets in the way. It gets in the way because there's no room for the spirit to act sometimes. Because everything's planned and scripted. So sometimes it's fear. What's going to happen if God shows up in revival? I like it much better this way when I'm in control. But there's also pride. And Luther talks about the sin of pride surfacing many, many times during the Western Grand Revival. The classic illustration uh, is this. The revival actually broke out in a small Baptist church in Saskatoon. The pastor of the flagship church in that whole city, a very large church by comparison, did not want his people to go there. Why broke out there, not here. It wasn't a Baptist church. And so he planned a special series of family life conferences just so that the people would come here and not go there. And they also already planned a missions conference and one of the missionaries was already in town and had already been announced. But mercifully, by the grace of God, this man began to get really convicted and troubled by his attitude. And so he called the elders of the church, he confessed this, and they decided to cancel all the services in their own, these two special services, and they told their people, go to the revival. That statement by the pastor of the flagship church released a wave of support for the revival throughout the city. And people began pouring into the Baptist church way beyond any capacity that they had. They had to move to a larger church. Guess which church they moved into? <laughs> the very church that the pastor initially didn't want any of his people to go as he opened it. What would have happened? What would have happened if through fear and pride he had clung on tenaciously? That's the other thing that the testimonies of the people in the Western Ukrainian revival was how many times God convicted people, especially leadership of local churches of pride. In fact, they said the turning point that would often determine when the revival would touch a particular church was when the leaders of that church publicly confessed their pride. And then you know what the young people said? We always knew these people were proud. Now they're willing to confess it and we are ready to join them. And that would open a floodgates for the young people to come. This is serious business, folks. This is God doing business with you and me. This is not revival every Sunday night. This is not Tupperware. This is fine bone china. Now, these are the four sins. What if somebody said, but I'm not guilty. I don't have a problem with any of these. Well, first of all, it's highly unlikely. Okay? Highly unlikely that there's anybody's room where none of those four are a problem. I already told you about one big one for me. Rigidity, born of my temperament. But let's say, let's say that's true. This is not an individual thing. Look at verse six again. All of us have become like one who is unclean and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. Well, Isaiah is saying all of us, he's including himself. Why is Isaiah including himself? I mean, this was the man who was Israel's greatest prophet. This was the man who had a life-changing encounter with the holiness of God. He uses the title Holy One of Israel more than anybody else in the whole Old Testament. He saw God, he saw the glory of God fill the temple. He didn't have to sing that song that we just sung. He experienced it. He heard the angels sing, Holy, Holy, Holy. And we're going to be singing a song afterwards. 
If anybody was free from this, it was Isaiah. But he said, no, all of us have. Because you see, they knew something that we don't have any clue of because we are such a ruggedly individualistic society that we get our identity from ourselves first and secondarily, if at all, from community. Whereas for most of the history of the world and for many cultures today, in fact, most cultures today except Western cultures, they got that identity first from their community and then and only then as individuals. Therefore, they were keenly aware of corporate guilt. If some people were guilty of these things, then our whole community is in trouble because of that. So you see, it doesn't matter what, where you stand on these things. If these are the things that can quench revival because they are sins against the Holy Spirit, then all of us need to get together and confess those sins. Now, when we do, when we do, then our prayer kicks into a different gear. Notice how Isaiah prays now. He's finished with repentance. And now he says, your sacred cities have become a desert. You see, uh, Jerusalem had been completely devastated by Nebuchadnezzar when he, king of Babylon, when he came and took the people captive. The temple was burned to the ground. The palace was burned to the ground. There was no more king, no more temple, no more land. All the poorest of the people were left in the land. And so he's lamenting, your sacred cities have become a desert. Even Zion, that was Mount Zion on which the temple was built, is a desert. Jerusalem is a desolation. Our holy and glorious temple where our fathers praised you has been burned with fire and all that we treasured lies in ruins. After all this, O Lord, will you hold yourself back? Will you keep silent and punish us beyond measure? See, precisely because this man had dealt with his sin so deeply, he was able to be incredibly bold before God. See, God does not call us to a repentant lifestyle, as I said, because he loves to see his people grovel. No, he calls us to repentance to get rid of those things in our life so that we can stand bold and tall before God and tell him, you do what you promise. That's what, that's what it means to lay a hold of somebody by their name. Their name, God's name means his character. This is why we need not, not, not to feel bad about ourselves, but to face truth about ourselves, ask the Lord to forgive us, and then get bold with God. Look at it. Well, our holy and glorious temple. God, this is your temple. It's burned down to the ground. Don't you care? After all this, are you going to keep quiet? Where's your zeal for your people? You can only afford to pray that way if you've gone low before him first in repentance. But this is why. This is the kind of meaningful, significant engagement with a holy God that he's calling us to. Now, today, we don't have temples that are burnt. This is a nice, beautiful building. So is the church that I've worshipped in for 45 years. But look at that phrase. All that we treasured lies in ruins. Isn't that a description of our country today? All that we treasured lies in ruins. Look, what about life itself? Abortion at one end, euthanasia at the other end. The sanctity of life is gone. Marriage is being redefined. Marriage itself is falling out of focus. Families are being desecrated. Pornography is just exercising, a, exacting a tremendous, tremendous price from men and even women in our society. Social media is just reducing our children and our teenagers to people who can't even communicate with each other face to face anymore. Everything that we treasured is lying in ruins. Is that that far away from reality? Is this time for business as usual? Or do we need to get busy holding a God like this and say, God, what about you? If I'm concerned about this, I'm a sinful person. You're infinitely holy. 
aren't you concerned? You say, well, can I talk to God like that? Yeah, if you first taken care of everything else. If you first dealt with those other things, we can get pretty bold with God. The same Bible that is filled with people in deep repentance before God. Daniel, Ezekiel, Nehemiah, Moses, Abraham. They also got a hold of God. That's what he says. He says, no one strives to lay a hold of me. He's inviting us. He says, take me by my name and hold me to my word. But deal with yourself first properly. This is an example of that kind of praying. So if the first part of the content of praying that paves the way for revival is repentance, the second part is bold intercession. As I draw this message to a close, worship team is going to come up in a few minutes. I want to finish by talking to those of you who are the younger generation, 25. Everybody looks young to me now at this eighth decade in my life, but I want to speak specifically to young men and women. You know why? Because every major revival has been triggered by young people. Evan Roberts was 17 years old. Don't you think he can get a hold of a 17-year-old again? That's my major passion at this stage. I have six grandchildren ranging in age from 21 to 9. Most of my prayers are for them and their generation now. Zinzendorf was a teenager, barely in his 20s. So was John Wesley. So was Charles Whitfield. Edwards graduated from Yale University at the age of 17. And at the end of the 18th century, the movement known as the Student Volunteer Movement that resulted in hundreds and thousands of young men and women going to various parts of the world as missionaries. You know what fueled them? Their fearless leader was a young man in his 20s, a man named John R. Mott, who crisscrossed the universities of North America with only one message, to ignite prayer movements on the campuses. Samuel Mills and the famous Haystack prayer meeting, a bunch of four college students. A global missions revival broke out as a result of that prayer time. It's your age group that has been used by God throughout history. It is high time again. And you're so right because you're not bogged down by us. You, you have capacity to dream dreams. You have a passion for justice and righteousness. You're not interested in shows. You see through hypocrisy quickly. You value relationships. You are primed and ready for to be igniters of revival. So if nobody else moves, young men and women, get together, two or three or four of you. Read the stuff that is provided on the internet. I've given you a link, how to use some scriptures to pray for revival. Read, read this particular book, when, when the Fire Fell, to get a picture of what revival is like. Just look at that and say, God, do that again. Join together, pray, because you never know. You never know which prayer meeting, which one prayer will be the one that triggers the revival. Did Evan Roberts know when he went to the front in a college and said, Lord, break me, that the Welsh revival was going to come out of that? Did these young men meeting at the Fetters Lane Society in London, England, know on that Christmas Eve, or New Year's Eve, I get which was in 1727, that a revolution was about to be launched with five incredible preachers all over England that would save it from the bloody revolution that was to sweep France. No. Nor will you ever know which prayer meeting will tilt the balance and God will pour out his blessing upon you. Is there anything more significant than that than you can do at a time when you're struggling to find meaning and purpose in a meaningless world? 
Let's pray again. I ask you for two things, Lord. Anything that I've said today that doesn't conform with what's in your heart for the people of this church today, let them forget it by the end of this day. Maybe even faster than that. Maybe an NFL game this afternoon will take care of that. But if it is something that you want them to hear, then will you please grip them so they will not be able to forget it? And again, I just gladly plead with you for the young ones in our midst, Father. Raise up an Evan Roberts. Raise up a John and Charles Wesley. Raise up a Jonathan Edwards. Raise up a George Whitfield. Raise up an unknown, un, like those unknown names of many, many young men and women who are part of this revival. Let them show us the way. And may we who are at the other end of that spectrum, at the very least, not get in their way, Father. And more than that, to be able to pray for them, support them, release them. In Jesus' name.